I think um, loads of things we're not sure of at all. But um, I, I was just thinking then, I am more convinced of, uh, of two particular things that are topical uh, here and, and seemingly around the world, certainly in this country, that forgiveness is the most painful of choices. And the, the choice to forgive where hurt and pain is all around in our own stuff, in our own families and friendships, and then in the wider world and the stuff that we see uh, happening. Um, forgiveness is the most painful of choices. It's, it's, we're not kidding where we say that. It's not chuck away. Um, but I also remain convinced of this, that forgiveness, as Jesus provokes, forgiveness could be the difference. Forgiveness could be the difference in my relationship with my family, with my friends, in my marriage. Forgiveness could be the difference in you know, relationship with people that have hurt me and forgiveness can absolutely be the difference in a world that is so divided on what the ideal is, on what the way forward is, on what should be happening. Surely, we're not going to get to a point where we all agree, but what we possibly could aim for is that a sense and understanding and a commitment to a lifestyle of forgiveness, of letting go and of finding grace when the, the people or the person simply doesn't deserve it. That can make the difference. That is... If you haven't been with us, our topic, our subject that we've been talking about for the past four weeks, and we go into a fifth week this morning, um, talking about this idea that forgiveness could be the thing that changes things. Forgiveness could be the thing while you have morals and ethics and standards, and this is the ideal and this is the thing. Forgiveness is the thing that separates Jesus from the rest of them. It separates Jesus from just a few good ideas to this life-changing possibility that if I can grasp hold of a Jesus understanding of forgiveness and commit to it, even when it is most painful, it could make all the difference in the world that I live. And uh, we've we kind of been journeying through that and spent the last couple of weeks thinking about this idea of this pain cycle, this hurt cycle, this I've been through something and I'm impacted by it negatively cycle. And if we don't deal with that if we don't kind of find a way to face that and, and make difficult choices to forgive, then it just keeps spinning and spilling. That cycle keeps spinning onto people that did it to you or people that didn't do it to you. And, you know, 15, 20, you know, 25 years later, something else happened to you in the past and it's still spinning. That cycle's still going. And I'm still spilling that rubbish, that resentment, that bitterness onto whoever happens to try and draw close to me. I had a light-hearted, deliberately light-hearted dilemma that, that kind of illustrates this, and I'm not trying to portray this as an actual depth to it, um, but in, in the interest of kind of beginning uh, an element of lighter, I had, um, from heaven is Pizza Hut cookie dough. Uh, and if you haven't, if you haven't tried, I mean, that, that's not the light note. That's actually deadly serious. If you haven't, if you haven't tasted cookie dough from pizza, then you, 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 you need to like just leave now. I don't know if they're open and go and get some because it's the greatest thing. And I'm told like Dave's calorie counting at the moment. Dave's like, oh, that is not good for you, Ad. And I'm like, come on, Dave, just give me something. Let, you know, you have, you know, beef or whatever it is. I just want cookie dough. And uh, every time, uh, I can say this, Gemma's not here. Every time, that, if you're listening, Gemma, I'm sorry. If every time Gemma is away for the evening, Without fail, I've got into a really bad habit. There's an app on my phone, and I just I can click like 14 buttons, and I have cookie dough arriving at my house, uh, you know, within minutes. And Domino's do a good one, but Pizza Hut is better. And so I had this this dilemma um, that come come about me, and and a couple of weeks ago, actually, it was about a month ago, and I ordered cookie dough from Pizza Hut, and. Uh, uh, you know, you're kind of expecting when you order something, it come within like half an hour or so. An hour later, 
I hadn't got the cookie dough. And it was like, I don't know, half past nine. I know it's a terrible time to eat, and Gemma would roast me for it. But, uh, so it's half past ten at night, and I'm waiting for this cookie dough. And I got two, because buy one, get one free. Uh, so you can't turn that down. I'm not going to be the guy that's like, do you want the free one? No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm eating one. I might as well eat two, is, is my justification. Uh, so anyway, they tried to deliver. I phoned them up, and I said... Where, where is my order? Like, it's been an hour. And they're like, oh, yeah, sorry, the, the, the dual carriageway was shut. I live out at Westwick, the dual carriageway, which is causing mayhem at the moment. It was shut at night. And so rather than kind of like, you know, I wonder if there's another way to Westwick, I, they, they literally just turned back and went back to the restaurant and waited for me to call, apparently. Uh, and so uh, I was like, not, can you just, like, you know, find another way around? They were like, okay, yeah, it'll, it'll be coming to you now. 20 minutes later, it still hasn't arrived. I was like, this is, this is absolutely nuts. And I'm kind of losing it a little bit. And like, you know, I'm, I'm getting frustrated. This is bothering me. So about quarter to 11, whatever, 10 to 11, I phone them up. And, and I'm like, where is my cookie dough? And then a different woman was like, oh, yeah, it's just been cooked. It's on the way to you now. I said, hang on. I said, Lily, an hour and a half. The last phone call you told me was that, it, you know, you tried to deliver it in the dual carriage. Which, like, what's going on here? You're, you know, you're lying to me. And I started to lose my rag a little bit about cookie dough. I'm sorry, I did. And the, the poor girl who's working at Pizza Hut is thinking, like, why does this guy care so much about cookie dough? I'm thinking, have you tasted it? You know, like, that would, that would give you an indication. So anyway, I, I got, like, they offered me, like, a, you know, a, uh, one of them voucher things that you have to use within 30 days. And, you know, I'd not, I didn't get my cookie dough. And I was, I was kind of distressed by that. And I went to uh, bed that night pretty upset. It's amazing the things you get upset about. But I got upset about it. And for a while there, I, d- I did that thing, which you, you, we love to do, as if it makes any difference to this massive multinational conglomerate uh, business going on. But I was I, I ain't ordering from them again. I won't, I won't order from Pizza I'll show them. I won't order from them again. And I, I, I remember feeling quite kind of like, no, not a chance. Next time Gemma was away. And uh, I went onto my phone and you know, looked at the app, Domino's Pizza Domino's Pizza And I was like, I'm going to order from Domino's. You, you, you've let me down, Pizza You're not going to have my business anymore. You know, that, 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 you know I, I, I put up my barriers. And I'm keeping my distance from Pizza And I started eating cookie dough from Domino's. It's just not as good. It's just not as good. I'm sorry. Like, you just, you try both. And I, to be honest, all I was trying to do was hurt Pizza Hut. It's all, it's all I was trying to do. Just cause them some kind of discomfort or pain. And anyway, my voucher was running out. And I was like, there's only two days left. I kind of got using it. I'm like, oh, they've, they've done me over here. This is exactly what Pizza Hut thought I would do. And so anyway, I'm thinking, oh, I'll just order. Maybe it's been enough time. Maybe I can let it go. Maybe, you know, it's one of them things. So I ordered again uh, about a week ago. And uh, it, again, it took them an age to deliver. I don't know if it's me or whether this is a Pizza Hut-wide thing. I don't know, but they just, they just don't care. And all the previous frustration came back. I, again, started losing my rag a little bit. And Jem was with me this time, and she kind of like condoned that, you know, okay, we haven't had one for a long time. I'm thinking, yeah, we haven't had one for a long time. Uh, so, you know, you know, let's get pizza. And she couldn't understand why I was getting so frustrated. And, like, you know, I phoned them up again. She's like, oh, why were you, getting, you know, losing your rag so much with a Pizza Hut girl? I was like, me, I've got a history with Pizza Hut. And then I'm like, oh, no, I've done myself over there. Like, when was the last time you called them, Ad? Uh, recently, sometime? Anyway, the question that we're starting with for this week and next week is simply this. And this is one of the most useful questions, I think, that we can come across when it comes to this idea of forgiveness. How do you know when you've forgiven someone? How do you know when you've let it go? Because much like my dilemma with Pizza Hut, we can get to a place where because we know it's the, the good thing to do or the thing that we want to do, or we hear stuff like, you know, being talked about here in church, kind of like, it is the thing that I want freedom from. 
Sometimes we kind of like, yeah, yeah, I've dealt with that. Yeah, I've dealt with that. Yeah, I've forgiven that. Or maybe we did, or we you know, did some counseling, or maybe we responded and we prayed through it with somebody. And, and, and you kind of like get to a point where you're like, yep, tick, done it, dealt with it. And we go through different stages of kind of being sure. Yes, absolutely. I have forgiven that hurt, that pain. I've let it go. You know, I've totally went through that process. And, and then something happens where the same emotions get brought up again. Or maybe the person does something again. Or maybe, you know, they just, you're just reminded of that. And then it all kind of like floods to the top again. And you're like, hang on, I'm not sure if I have dealt with it. I thought I had dealt with it. And then it becomes almost a more confusing issue. That you thought you'd reached forgiveness, but it's like, have I actually forgiven that person? And as we've been journeying through this the last few weeks, it might have been that you kind of like ticked a box and kind of said, yeah, I dealt with that, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah, I dealt with that last month. Yeah, I've dealt with that. I've, you know, I've definitely forgiven that person. And as we've begun to talk about it, we're kind of uneasy. We're not like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to kind of go there. Because we can feel that pain coming back again. And it's confusing. And it makes us think like, hang on, I don't know if I have truly forgiven. Is there different stages? Is there ratings? Is there levels? Is there... Like a point where you can absolutely green light forgiveness, doesn't it? The truth is, I'm not always sure when people ask me, how do I know when I've totally forgiven someone? I'm not entirely sure. I wasn't necessarily entirely sure how to answer that question. And then a few months ago, the, the book that's kind of the, the undercurrent for this entire series, a book called Total Forgiveness by R.T. Kendall. And this, this story that we're going to talk about today kind of hooked me in. I've, I've preached on this story, story of Joseph you know, quite a lot of times we actually did a series on it at GNC a few years ago. And it's the story that we're going to spend the next couple of weeks in it. Because unbeknown to me, despite spending some time in it over the past few years, there is this brilliant outline of this understanding of knowing when you have forgiven someone. And I just want to kind of unpack that a little bit. So if you're engaged in this question of kind of like you're working through this process of having forgiven someone or you think you have forgiven someone, but every time someone mentions their name, it just rises up again or you can't necessarily be around them or you can't deal with the same issue without it kind of doing something to you. And it makes you think, oh man, I'm not sure if I have. I'm not sure if I'm kidding myself and I'm still living under that cloud. Then the next couple of weeks are going to be really interesting for you. It's the story we'll spend as we discover a crucial forgiveness truth. Genesis 37, it's kind of like, I'm going to have to zip through it this morning. It's like a roller coaster. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible, but it's long. Uh, and so it's not the kind of like, let's do our reading this morning. I'd be here till 20 past 12 and we wouldn't have anything else to say. So, but Genesis 37 through to about Genesis 50 is the story of Joseph. And I kind of, I've done my best to kind of paraphrase it. And if I lose you, just go away and, 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 and Google it or, you know, or actually read the whole thing yourself. And, and, and find that out. But Joseph, basically, to kind of give you the, 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 the points that I need you to have for us to gain an understanding of what we're talking about. Joseph was one of 12 brothers. So he had 11 brothers. And he wasn't popular with them. That's crucial. There's loads of other stuff. There's a thing about Technicolor, Dreamcoat, and all the rest of it. But the crucial thing is he had a load of brothers and he wasn't popular with them. He was kind of like, the, or they, he was considered to be the favorite with their dad, Jacob. And he had dreams about how his brothers would one day bow down to him. Just in case you're wondering why he wasn't popular. That was kind of why he wasn't popular. He, he came across as a bit of an egotist. He came across as a bit of a, like, you know, I'm the favorite. I know it. And you guys are going to have to wear it. And one day you're going to bow down to me anyway. So, and he, you know, I don't know if he wondered why, why he wasn't popular. He wasn't popular. And it seems pretty clear why. So one thing kind of led to another. And the brothers planned to kill Joseph. But at the last minute, they kind of like talked themselves into a different idea and instead sold him as a slave to a bunch of people called the Ishmaelites who eventually then sold him uh, into, uh, to a master in Egypt, which we'll get to in a second. 
But the brothers went back to their dad. And if you're with us this week and next week, it'd be good if you heard both. So either way, get online, listen to it, whatever, because it's part one of two. It won't make a lot of sense. But they went back and they told their dad that he had been killed, that Joseph had been killed. And they took like a, a part of his robe and they dipped it in uh, animal blood in order to kind of convince his dad. And so Jacob thinks his son, Joseph, has died. Joseph's story is one heck of a roller coaster, and jumping through is hard, it's hard to bolt through it, but jumping through it. Uh, Joseph managed to kind of find his feet in Egypt, where he went there as a slave uh, with nothing, no relationship, no money, no anything, but he managed to find his feet, and he, uh, get, he got a job as, uh, in an Egyptian officer's house. Uh, Potiphar was his name, and he got a job there, and somehow he got promoted. He did really well, and uh, all the way through the story of Joseph is really interesting. About five or six times, it keeps saying this sentence, but God was with Joseph. That's important to hold on to because Joseph wasn't always with God necessarily. He was a bit of an idiot at times. But God was with Joseph. And so I guess because of that, he found himself getting promoted up to the top of the house. He was like, you know, the, the, the top guy in this uh, Potiphar's house. And just thing, when things were going really well, his master, Potiphar's wife, took a fancy to Joseph and she came on to him, and he rejected her constantly. It kind of like plays out a few times. But then she went one step further and accused him of raping her. And Potiphar's in a position where his wife is saying one thing, and I don't know if Joseph defends himself, but ultimately what happens is Joseph gets chucked in prison as a result of something he didn't do. Talk about your bad luck. Talk about, you know, it, it's not working out the way that he would want it to. So he got sold into slavery by his brothers. His dad thinks he's dead. He's now thrown into prison for something he didn't do. He had a lot to be bitter about. Joseph had a lot to be bitter about. He had a lot to be resentful of. He, 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 he had a good reason to become negative, to hold grudges. He had many people to forgive. His brothers from that day where they chucked him in a pit and then sold him. Potiphar's wife, no doubt. Potiphar but for not listening to him, whatever. And then probably most of all for God for letting all this stuff happen so undeserved and there he was where we land today there he was sat in that prison tortured without doubt not necessarily by the guards or anything but tortured by the wrong that had been done to him the injustice that he sat in that his life had become letting it eat him up defining who he had become that might not be that you've gone through something as extreme as this but there's an element where we can find a mirror there where we're sat in our prison if you like in the thing that we that is holding us as a result of the things that have happened to us and just sitting there just letting it eat us up just replaying it again and again and again and just uh, allowing that to define the life that we lead the decisions that we make are as a result of the things that have happened to us. The processes that we go through, the, the, the way that we talk, the way that we post, the way that we do whatever, are in, in part as a result of what has happened to us. We're kind of held in that prison. And there he was, letting it eat him up, defining who he'd become. It's worth saying, I want to make it perfectly clear, because it, it goes close at times to making it sound like Joseph didn't have a right to feel that way. He did have a right to feel that way. And you have a right to feel the way that you do. Joseph had unjustly been, been treated unjustly. It was so cruel that his own brothers would do that to him. It was so unfair that he would get chucked in prison for something he didn't do. That, it, it's not about saying anything that happened to him was in any way right or just. It was wrong. It's not condoning it at all. 
but it is what it does to us and what we do with it that makes the difference. It is what was, it was doing to Joseph and, what, and how he reacted to it, the choices he made as a result of it, which we'll see in a second, that makes the difference. Sitting in that prison, was Joseph ready to let it go? Was Joseph ready to forgive his brothers? Was he ready to begin to choose to stop the pain cycle? Was he, you know, was he isolated in that moment to go, enough is enough, the pain stops here? The same for us as we sit in the places that we've been held in, as the places that we've you know, been you know, taken captive by, those thought processes that we can't just escape, that relationship that burnt us that we just can't let go of, and it defines every relationship that we have you know, since that point. Are we ready to let it go? Are we ready to forgive? Are we ready to begin to choose to stop the pain cycle? What help can we get from this? We see two things in Joseph that will help you to see things for yourself. If you're in that place, an historic one or a a current one, if you're in that place, then there's some key stuff here. We see two things. Joseph offered in prison to interpret uh, a dream. He had this gift to be able to kind of make sense or prophetically or you know, effectively to say this is what I think that means and it be more than just a kind of like a, you know, having a punt he actually had a bit of a gift for it and there's this story where there's a cupbearer and a baker in prison with him and they both have dreams and Joseph said I can interpret that for you and unfortunately and sadly he predicted the baker would be killed as a result of the things that he did and that happened that came true but you know more fortunately for the cupbearer he had an interpretation of the cupbearer's dream the cupbearer who'd worked for Pharaoh, that he would get his job back. So Pharaoh is like the king, the leader of the land, and he's like, you know, cupbearer, you're going to get your job back. That's what your dream means. So obviously the cupbearer is buzzing at that because, you know, he's seen what happened to the baker. He's thinking, I don't want my dream to mean that. But in Genesis 40, verse 14, I've never seen this before. Genesis 40, verse 14, Joseph, in the midst of interpreting this dream, in the midst of saying, this is what I believe is going to happen to you, He spills something of what he's got going on. He spills a sense of self-righteousness and self-pity that he's still trapped in. He says this to the cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, this is straight off the back of the, this is what it's going to mean. This is what the dream's going to mean. But when all goes well for you, don't forget this. Remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison, for I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing wrong. And he's there, trying to grasp at something, trying to make sure people understand the wrong that has been committed to him, trying to make an excuse, trying to give a reason. I've been around this, uh, this church and my family and all the rest of it, kids, uh, hilarious to watch. I'm in a great position where I can just kind of like laugh at other people's kids and not have to worry about having to deal with the stuff that's going on. And kids, the, the, the varied methods, and I'm sure I was like this, I'm sure my mum would say this, but the varied methods and excuses and reasons that kids come up with when they're caught out is just brilliant. Uh, the imagination that kids have and the different kind of categories that they fall into, and I'm sure the parents would be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I recognize that one, I recognize that one. And all the, the different categories that the kids come up with it, when they're caught out, I don't know if you've been around here or you know, you've got family or whatever, or you're obviously your own kids, where you kind of like, you catch them doing something they shouldn't do. And you've got these different categories. I'm sure there's others, but these are the ones I could think of and, and kind of experience. So you've got the quiet and cute ones. The quiet and cute ones who just, they've been caught out, they know they've been caught out, but they also know they've got a major weapon. They're cute as, they, as you like and they know it. 
And so they just kind of like, you just turn, they play cute, and the parents have got a battle. You know, kind of like, you know, I just smile and give in because, you know, my kid's so cute. I just, I can't tell them off now. That's just, it's, it's too difficult to do. On the other end of the scale, you've got the crying ones. They've been caught out and they just burst into tears and start wailing. But obviously because they've been caught out, but, you know, that's, that's their plan. That's their play. That's what they go with. So they, they don't offer any explanation. They don't offer an apology. They just cry. It's just what they go with. And the parent, again, has got a difficult decision. They're like, you know, what do I do here? Like, this is an awful noise. It's embarrassing. Or they just stopped. Or they actually kind of like let it play out. Or whatever. You know, I'm going to learn all this stuff one day, I'm sure. You've got the other ones, which I find hysterical. The running ones. So they get caught out and they just run. They just run away. I, it's, I, can you imagine if an adult did that? That would be brilliant. Like you got caught doing something you shouldn't do at work and you just peg it out of the room and your boss is just stood there like that's an unusual thing to have happened. But that would be brilliant. Maybe we should try it. I don't know. Maybe it's one of these things that kids have got something up on us. The creative reason one. So I particularly like this one. Uh, my nephew is Elijah, Paul and Kate's uh, son, and he is just uh, a creative, imaginative genius. The stuff he comes up with the, to explain the thing that he's just been caught doing is just brilliant. It's just absolutely brilliant. Some of the stuff like, you know, he's, you know making out that, you know, a, a bird stole, you know, Grace's ice cream and landed it on his lap and then, you know, held him ransom until he ate it or something like that. Like, you know, that, that's the kind of stuff. That, but I love those because there's an element where <laughs> that's impressive. I don't know if I'm going to be like this with my kids, but I might be like, I'm going to let you off because that's, that's absolutely brilliant what you just came out with. Gemma will probably hate that, but that's maybe what happens. Then you've got the don't care kids. The don't care kids. They've been caught out. They stay it. Yeah, red-handed, no problem. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? I, I, I'm not bothered. I'm not bothered. Whatever you, whatever you throw at me, mum, dad, I'm not bothered. And they just don't care at all. And then lastly, the one that makes any sense of what we're talking about here, you've got the excuse kids. The excuse kids. Just the constant flow of this is why it happened, and this is what happened, and this is what they did, and that's why I did what this happened. And they just, honestly, I've seen this happen with parents, and it's, it, I'm sure I'll come up against it as well. That The length of the explanation takes so long that the parent literally switches off. They're bored. They're, they're not listening anymore at all to what the kid is saying. And the kid, and I'm sure the kid knows this, they're clever, I tell you. And so the kid has gone on so long that parents are like, oh, whatever, yeah, fine. Yeah, okay, let's just move on. And then you see this kind of like smug little smile come over the kid's face. They're like, well played. I did well there. Like, you know, I just kept talking for long enough to the point that parents are like, I'm not bothered anymore. I just, I, I can't remember what you did wrong. You know, you started speaking 10 minutes ago and I've, I've, I've lost all sight of it. Joseph, I'm guessing, was an excuse kid because he had all kinds of reasons uh, and he wanted people to know. And uh, we, we joke about the fact that, you know, we, we might not run out of the room when we get caught doing stuff as adults, but <laughs> as adults, we definitely still play the excuse card. And J, uh, Joseph here was obsessed with how right he is, with how not wrong he is. And he is obsessed with ensuring that the cupbearer in this instance, but whoever will listen knows that. And that is, that is his thing. First and foremost, like he's given out a, 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 you know, a prophetic dream interpretation and on the end of it, he tags on, but don't make the mistake. I deserve not to be here. I deserve to get out of this place. Don't you forget me. And here's why don't forget me, because I am wrongly imprisoned. I've had a bad run of it, and you need to know that, and that's how I see how things have played out. Joseph was obsessed with how right he is, and I've often kind of like wondered if I was Joseph in that position, and like it seems like, is that something God's given me there, cupbearer who's getting out and he works for Pharaoh? Like, what an opportunity. I've got to make sure he knows to, you know, tell Pharaoh to get me out of here, and I've always thought, yeah, I, I would have done that. I would have told the, the Pharaoh's cupbearer to say, hey, I've helped you out, you know, kind of get me out of here. 
It's interesting that for two years, Joseph stayed in that prison. For two years. And it's kind of easy to look at that and kind of go, God, if I'd been through what Joseph had been through, you'd think God would cut him a break. You'd think God would be like, well, he's just laid on a plate like this cupbearer guy who just happens to be the, the Pharaoh's cupbearer. He's going to be talking to Pharaoh tomorrow. Come on, God, like, why wouldn't you use that? Why would you give that and, 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 and then take it away? Two years? Here's the thing that I see. Joseph was obsessed with how right he was. And that might be true, but that isn't what forgiveness is about. That's the problem we get stuck on. We think it's about right and wrong. We think it's about what happened to us and therefore how right we are because that was wrong. Forgiveness isn't working in that. Forgiveness is the painful choice to let go what is absolutely wrong. He was obsessed with how right he is, but God's plan for Joseph was to free him from his bitterness, from his, look how right I was, look how wrong everything else was, to free him from this self-righteousness, to free him from this self-pity that he has. It doesn't, it doesn't matter that you have a right to be self-righteous. It doesn't matter that you have a right to pity the situation. God wants you to be free from those things. He wanted Joseph to be free. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 5 says, Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs. And is not self-seeking. The place that God was aiming for with Joseph was where he could get to a place where he didn't keep a record of the wrong that happened to him and that he wasn't self-seeking in the way that he was. The, pl- the, the place that God is trying to get you to is the place where you no longer keep a record of the wrongs that have been done to you and that you are no longer self-seeking in how you go about it. The thing is, if the cupbearer had got Joseph out of prison, it might have got him out of physical prison, but it wouldn't have got him out of emotional prison. He still would have been a self-righteous, self-pitying, look what happened to me, look, because of that, therefore I deserve this. And we, we absolutely do that. We go through our lives kind of like almost doing deals, justifying with God, like, look what I've had to go through, God, therefore this should be plain sailing from here. God was like, that's not freedom. That, that isn't freedom. I want you to be free, Joseph. And so until you're ready to you know, get to a place where you're keeping no record of wrongs, you're not self-seeking, where you're able to let go, to make the painful choice to say what happened to me was wrong, but I choose to forgive it, then you're going to be in this prison, physical and emotional. Joseph is intent on manipulating the situation for himself rather than facing his pain. In our hurt, we keep repeating, we do this, I've done this for myself, we keep repeating to whoever will listen how right I am, how wrong they were, how right I was, how wrong they were how badly treated I've been, how I can stand without fault, why it was all that person's fault and none of mine. Here's the thing. Even if that's the case, and I I try and say this as gently as I can because when hurt and pain are involved, it's easy for us to get our back up. Even if that's the case, even if you were completely right, even if the other person was completely wrong, it makes no difference. You are still in prison. You're still stuck. haunted by that hurt, provoked by that pain, our self-righteousness makes no difference. Only one thing makes the difference. He's at a pity pie. Secondly, he's at a pity pie. 
giving cup, the cupbearer a prophecy, he still makes it about himself. This moment isn't about Joseph. This moment's about the cupbearer. This moment's about the dreams he, he's had. It's a moment, this moment's about what's going on in cupbearer's life. This moment is about the fact that he's going to be restored, that there's going to be grace, that there's going to be a, a mercy, that, that there's going to be something. This is about cupbearer. And yet Joseph very quickly makes it about him. That's great that you're getting your life back, Mr. Cupbearer, but look at what has happened to me. It's so unjust, it's so unfair. Look at what I've had, look at what I've gone through, look what I've experienced. Yes, absolutely. Not taking anything away from that. Please hear me. We're not taking anything away from that. But this isn't about saying it doesn't matter. It's about recognizing that it does. That's what the wisdom of God saw in Joseph's situation. It wasn't that it didn't matter what he'd been through. It was recognizing that it absolutely did. But sitting there in that prison even if he was out of physical prison, sitting there in that resenting, negative, bitter, look at what happened to me, look at what happened to me, look how right I was, look how wrong I was, is never going to bring freedom. And some of you are still stuck in that prison, stuck talking about it, stuck thinking about it, stuck, stuck repeating it. And we express it through bitchiness, we express it through hostility, through distance, through barriers, through resentment. Here's the thing, and you know this in the last two weeks. Here's the thing. Joseph was, as are many of us, trapped in this cycle, spinning and spilling, spinning and spilling. My dad hurt me, therefore I hurt my husband. My brothers hurt me, therefore I hurt any you know, male that comes into my life. My leaders hurt me, therefore I hurt anyone that ever tries to tell me to do anything. Spinning and spilling, spinning and spilling. Here's a key truth from Joseph. Self-righteousness and self-pity are eclipsed when we are prepared to forgive totally. They are taken out of the equation when we are prepared to forgive totally, keeping no record of wrong. Simply put, Joseph, in the cupbearer days, wasn't ready to forgive, and God knew that. God knew that. He wasn't punishing Joseph. He'd be in a physical prison or an emotional prison. Either way, he was in prison. And Joseph would get out eventually, and we finish here today, but God was working on a bigger prison that Joseph was stuck in. The bitterness to his brothers, the resentment to Potiphar and his wife, the resentment towards anybody that had ever done anything to him that he recognized as wrong and that he was right, and that underlying anger that goes through the whole thing, through his whole life, towards a God who let it happen. Two years on, Two years on in the story, his brothers, and we'll cover this next week, so I'm not like kind of just ending with a very brief summary of what ended up happening, but two years on, his brothers that had betrayed him, that had pretended to kill him, that had sold him into slavery, somehow found themselves in Egypt. We'll look at why. And they somehow came face to face with Joseph, who was now in a position of power and influence. Talk about a turnaround. Talk about A, and God was with him. And there they stood before him. <laughs> there they stood before him. Knowing what he has gone through at their hands. And he lovingly, graciously, amazingly welcomed them and forgave them in such an impacting way. We'll look at that next week. But it is the manner of that forgiveness that answers our question. How do I know 
if I've forgiven someone? How do I know if I've forgiven someone? We'll get into five points next week that lays them out, and it is incredibly impacting. But for today, I want to finish with this. Uh, Jordan, Nathan, uh, Jordan, now I want to come on up. Here's my question that I couldn't get around, and I want to kind of almost like tease us with: What happened in those two years? Because two years on, two years on from this bitter, self-righteous, self-pitying, look how right I was, look how wrong they were, person who didn't take a second invitation to make sure the cupbearer knew that he was unjustly treated. Two years on is the guy who stood in front of his brothers, lovingly and graciously forgiving them. What happened in those two years? I love questions like this because there isn't a lot of clue. There isn't a lot of uh, grasp of that. Those two years changed Joseph from a self-pitying, self-righteous man trapped in his pain. His circumstances or environment didn't change. He was still in prison. He was in prison for another two years. So it wasn't that you know, he got out and you know, the fresh air just changed him or whatever. He was in prison. So something happened that changed him. And for those of us that are considering where we are on the Joseph scale, and this is where it's you and your personal application, I don't know where you are at, whether it's a historical thing that you think you dealt with and you're now wondering if you're battling with it, or if it's a now thing and it hurts now and you're dealing with it, you're trying to work out where on this Joseph scale that you are. There's two things that I can, sh- can absolutely say that Joseph had. Time and choices. Time and choices. Those were the two things that we know Joseph had in that period of time. We don't know a lot else. But in prison, we know he had time. Two years, we know he had time. And like any human being, even in prison, he has choices. What do I think about? What do I dwell on? What do I go over? What do I allow myself to repeat? What do I believe in? What do I reach out to? From my own experience... In my own life, God, I know, uses time as a major agent of change. We don't like it because we want it instant. We, you know, we want to just come forward, pray, and everything's good. But God doesn't always work. It can work like that, but he doesn't always work like that. He uses time. He uses time because emotions calm, or the heat and, or sting of a situation cools, and, and it does its thing. God often waits a season to process or to heal or to find reason. And God often waits or causes us to wait to allow time to develop or strengthen us. If you're in a prison this morning, I just want to say to you, time and choices, time and choices is where you are. It's not about feeling bad because you're not ready to step out of that prison. You're not ready to make that choice to lovingly and and graciously not necessarily embrace the person, but embrace forgiveness. Time and choices. Joseph's transformation can be attributed to what he decided to do. What he decided to do when he woke up each morning with a memory or even the reaction of the fact the cupbearer is not helping. That is not what's going on. He could have got more bitter. He probably did. Could have got more resentful. Doesn't mean he wasn't angry. Doesn't mean he wasn't frustrated. Doesn't mean he spent most of his days in that first six months shouting at God. He probably did. But with the time that he had, he began to make choices to process the pain.
some point in those two years, Joseph woke up and said, today, the pain stops here. I might never see Potiphar's wife again. I might never see my brothers again. I might never see the cupbearer again. But I choose that the pain stops here. He chose grace when he had previously chosen bitterness. He chose to let go when he had previously chosen to hold on. He chose forgiveness. And as we'll see, that made all 